Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode of GoTime is brought to you by Airbrake. Airbrake is full stack error monitoring for Go applications. Get real time error alerts plus all the info you need to fix any error fast. And in this segment, I'm talking to Joe Godfrey, CEO of Airbrake, about why getting to the root cause of errors is so important. Look, Adam, to me, root cause is everything. All software has bugs. We all know that. And when you find a bug or, or when you can't find a bug, the amount of time that typically gets spent trying to chase around and figure out how to reproduce the problem and what's the cause of the problem, even like what part of the code kicked it off or what sort of actions drive it. I mean, that's hours and hours of time wasted spent chasing your tail instead of actually fixing the problem, improving the customer experience and getting back to building more features, which is really what your company is all about. So to me, being able to really understand like what is the root cause of this problem is the key factor to being able to solve that problem and get back to doing what's most important, which is building new features and improving your product. And and quite frankly, fixing the customer experience that's broken as long as that bug is out there. All right, check out Airbrake at airbrake.io slash GoTime. GoTime listeners get Airbrake for free for 30 days, plus you get 50% off your first three months. Try it free today. Once again, airbrake.io slash GoTime. This is Ron Evans, a.k.a. Dead Program, and this is GoTime. This is GoTime, a panel of Go experts and special guests every single week discussing the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. We record live every Thursday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Tune in at GoTime.fm. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, today's episode is number 78. On the show today, we have myself, Eric St. Martin, uh, and Brian Kettleson. Also known as Frankie Valley. <laughs> and Carlicia Pinto. Hi there. And our special guest for today, we are welcoming back Ron Evans, uh, who, as always, is doing exciting stuff with Hardware and Go. Hi, everybody. So we've got some new stuff to talk about since uh, I think it was episode 37. It was in the 30s we had you on. So that was, I guess, roughly a year ago. Um, and it's forever you've been ago. Out, yeah. So you've been doing a lot of uh, interesting stuff since then. Um, you you want to talk a little bit about uh, GoCV? Sure. So um, computer vision, which is when cameras are used to give computer the same kinds of ability that humans have as far as processing visual information has been a technology that's been around for you know many years in different forms and flavors the most powerful and generally used computer vision software in the open source world is called opencv and it's been around for Oh, I don't know, I think about seven or more years. It has literally hundreds of patent-free, and then some also patent-required, but hundreds of algorithms for doing different kinds of computer vision applications. 
So many of us you know, who are familiar with OpenCV wanted to use it from Go, but unfortunately, the thing that we found out was there was no library in Go that supported the latest and greatest versions of OpenCV. OpenCV has, I think, over 20,000 stars on GitHub. It's got hundreds of contributors, as I said, hundreds of algorithms. So if you're not up on, you know, a relatively recent version, you know, within the last, you know, year or two, you're missing out on a lot of really important developments. So uh, a bunch of us in the Go world wanted there to be a new Go wrapper for OpenCV. In fact, I even I talked about that with Eric at last GopherCon, and uh, we all of us were hoping somebody would do it, and I guess I flinched first. Uh, <laughs> so uh, started working on it in earnest um, last year, and the first version of GoCV, which is a brand new wrapper all around the latest and greatest OpenCV, came out in October. And it was really amazing how many people jumped on the bandwagon as far as being excited that they could use all of the latest versions of Go with all the latest versions of Go, of OpenCV. So um, we've already got about 800 plus stars on GitHub. You know, we've had 30 some odd contributors. We still have quite a ways to go to create all of the same functionality that some of the other language wrappers have, like Python, for example, which is, you know, most of the people who do OpenCV work tend to use Python just because the <clears throat> bar to entry is a little bit lower than C++, and there is a lot of good code out there. Um, but it does turn out to be a bit like an alchemist search for scraps of scrolls on the internet that have little pieces of Python code that you know, hopefully do the thing you need for your computer vision application. What our intentions are behind GoCV is really to make it a first-class language client able to do any of the things you can do in any other language with OpenCV, but then also have the concurrency, the performance, and the portability that Go provides to application developers. So what are the kinds of things that you can accomplish with GoCV? I mean, I know that I've seen demonstrations that you've done at GopherCon where you recognize the existence of faces. Can you go farther than that and recognize people, do the facial recognition like, you know, these are photos of Brian? Yes, actually. Um, so our original implementation of OpenCV that we showed uh, at the first GopherCon was... Uh, you know, it was, um, it looked good if you didn't know what it was. But if you knew what it was, you're like, wait, that's the best you can do? You know, we, 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 it was a hack. And a lot of it just had to do with that we had not really knuckled down and said, okay, we need to take this seriously and not just hack a few functions together. But, you know, the depth of the kinds of applications you could build with OpenCV, or, it's such a vast tool. It's got so much to it. But some of the applications that, uh, you know, facial tracking, obviously, but facial recognition is also something that there's a whole module 
uh, called the face module, which specifically is for that purpose. Um, we also have support in GoCV for the Intel computer vision SDK. So Intel has a special version of OpenCV that they call the computer vision SDK. It also has some additional non-open source type secret sauce from Intel engineers to do much more efficient facial recognition. And then um, some of the other really interesting capabilities, you know, we were just mentioning TensorFlow um, from Francesc's talk. Um, you know, one of the main capabilities that we've been working with extensively lately with GoCV has been the support for utilizing deep neural networks like TensorFlow and CAFE. That way you can process the visual data that you're getting from your cameras or from your streaming video, run it through your deep neural networks and use it for image classification or image tracking or other interesting applications. So there is a lot of action. Computer vision is just so hot right now. Computer vision is this year's IOT. You know, it's the thing that everyone is going to be talking about, you know, by summer. So actually I want to pick up on what you just said about, um, you know, people are using it, it's really cool. And let me start by telling a story. So I've known the Alexa and Google Home, not so much Google Home, because I think it's newer. So I knew these things were out there. And I sort of looked into it, but not really. So, and I went to a friend's house for a barbecue and he had both of them. And he's like telling them to turn, on the, turn off the lights and play this music, that music. And I was sewed. I never really got what he did until I saw it with my own eyes. And so what I wanted to ask you is like talk to talk to people who haven't used this stuff. What, what would a regular person want to use this for? Or, and also who are using this, like companies, uh, individuals, who's really using, putting this to good use and how? So, you know, the canonical application for computer vision are usually some type of surveillance cameras or observation cameras. When you have cameras located someplace other than where the people who want to observe the information, so you could just do that with streaming video, right? But then you mm -hmm. need a person to actually look at it and interpret this information. And there's a number of applications of where you, you know, people just can't do it as quickly as machines. A really good one is auto stabilization of photos. So most, or video rather. So most of people's videos are really shaky and horrible. They look terrible until they start shooting their videos on smartphones and all of a sudden they start looking perfect. And they, wow, how, how did people get so, their, their hands suddenly got steadier? No, it was that algorithms associated with computer vision applications are doing the image stabilization so that the videos don't look so herky-jerky anymore. You know, that's, so that's not even AI anymore. Now it's just part of the built-in, you know, video processing software that's in your camera. You don't even think twice. Is, so, is herky-jerky a technical term? Herky-jerky <laughs> is a technical term we use for older C-level executives. Oh, okay. Thank you. And when you put this in a drone, for example, what are the uses for that? So the real reason why you guys wanted me to come on this week, um, besides the fact that, you know, 
I'm a good punter, is uh, <laughs> more importantly all about drones, specifically the latest and greatest drone from DJI, which is called the Tello. So the Tello is a brand new drone. Um, it was just announced at CES this year, catching everyone by surprise. It's actually a, uh, for $99 US, it's a collaboration between DJI and Intel. And it uses DJI's uh, drone navigation and piloting, or flight control rather, technology, combined with some very interesting image processing technology from Intel. So built into the Tello is a chip that is from an Intel-owned company called Movidius. It's what's known as a VPU or a visual or video processing unit. And it's a chip that's specifically designed for doing computer vision applications. In the case of the drone, it's used for what's called optical flow. So optical flow is when you use the images that you're seeing in order to stabilize, in this case, the drone. You know, it's very, very stable. It doesn't tend to drift around or move because it's able to use the high quality HD video that it's getting, match that to its current position, and then audio automatically reorient itself based on the visual information that it's getting. So as opposed to trying to do these things with less accurate ultrasound being the, the typical, if you look at the original most popular consumer drone, which is the Parrot AR drone, on the bottom are these two little uh, circles with screens over them. That's the ultrasonic rangefinder that's used for trying to calculate the distance with the ground. And then it's got a little pinhole camera that it tries to use in order to stabilize itself. That way it might, it doesn't just retain the same height, but it also retains the same position. I mean, if the thing is, is six, feet off the ground, but it's moving left or right at random, it's going to knock into somebody or something. So to have a really good auto stabilization algorithm, you need to combine different sorts of data and visual data is the most important data. So the Tello for this incredibly low price has probably one of the most advanced uh, chips used for deep neural network processing. In this case, it's being used for the optical flow and stabilization algorithms that are part of the Tello. So kind of a long explanation, but it's amazing how easy it is to use because basically if when you tried to fly radio-controlled helicopters you know, last century, the first thing you did was crash your helicopter into a tree because they're very hard to keep stable. Whereas these days, you know, Lots and lots of people go out and buy a consumer drone, and within a very short time of taking it home or to the office, they're able to fly and generally not crash into things. And that's to a large extent because of the kind of computer vision software and hardware that's built into drones these days. I've so the Tello cool... takes that down to 99 bucks US, and you've got all this stuff built in. I've got a pretty cool uh, hexacopter that uh, I still have not learned to fly. It looks good just sitting there, though. 
And the crazy thing thinking about these chips, though, too, is is that, you know, the amount of processing and stuff they do and like you would think that the chip itself would cost ninety nine dollars or more. Right. And you can actually get a working drone with it. And that is just incredible. And a battery comes with a battery as well. Yeah, I so, mean, a, wow. lipo, a, a decent lipo battery will cost you a hundred bucks. Yeah, I think the, the replacement batteries are like $19 US. So obviously a big part of the bill of materials on the Tello is the battery it comes with, you know. They are actually exactly $19. I know this because I'm hitting the place order button right now. Yeah, I, I, should, I think uh, I'm, I'm obviously a uh, salesperson for DJI now. But this is you really know, impressive. It basically the what, among many other things that's great about it is, you know, it's a toy. It's the weight of it is less than the weight and the size of it is less than the size necessary for the Federal Aviation Administration to consider that the Tello is a toy drone. It's not a professional drone. So you do not need to have a small unmanned aerial systems license. I, I happen to have one anyway, but that's just uh, that's a different subject. Um, but you could just fly them around. They don't have a long range. But generally speaking, you don't want to be flying far, far away from where you are anyway, unless you are a professionally trained pilot. So it's incredible how much stuff is built in there for such a cheap price. Or excuse me, such a good value. But, <laughs> um, but the problem with the Tello that we discovered so one of, the, one of the things that they were doing is they're selling it as here's a drone that you could buy for your kids and they can learn to program drones, right? They, they have some basic support for the Scratch visual programming language. So Scratch, uh, we, should, well, we should put a link on the uh, page. So Scratch is a, is a brilliant project from MIT. It's been around for a bunch of years. They're currently working on Scratch 3.0, but Scratch 2.0 is the shipping version. And it's the result of, uh, Scratch is actually the evolution of a project from the great Alan Kay called Alice, which was designed for teaching very young people visual programming, visual programming a la flowchart style programming, not visual in the sense of programming computer vision applications. So, so DJI did do the right thing of trying to, well, they attempted to do the right thing by building in some very basic support for programmability. However, there was a few problems. One of them is, that's great, I can use Scratch. But even, you know, even my uh, youngest son was already gone far beyond scratch programming by age seven. <clears throat> That's very common. You know, um, I think that visual programming is a tremendous paradigm for teaching the concepts of programming, but generally most of us do not do visual programming as a part of any serious task because it, the burden of trying to represent that information, you know, sometimes a picture can tell a thousand words, but sometimes you need, you know, 10,000 words for a picture. So it's more efficient to just, um, you know, or, or, you know, the 
compression that we're able to achieve through a textual description of programming is so far the best paradigm we've got. But they didn't, in their busyness or whatever, uh, they decided, or they didn't decide, rather. I, I assume it was a non-decision. They just didn't get around to releasing any other SDKs for any other programming languages. And in fact, the Scratch SDK has a lot of limitations that even kids who got it right away discovered. So here we are, this one of the coolest drones around, really inexpensive, yet no programmability. Well, that sounds like a mission for a packet sniffer. So um, a small group of us, all under various handles, except for me, because my handle's publicly known, um, we started doing uh, using a tool called Wireshark. So Wireshark is, is an absolutely fantastic tool that's used for security analysis and network engineering and, and lots of other applications. It allows you to capture packets that are being transmitted via Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and, and a couple of other wireless protocols. Capture those packets, and then you can analyze them to try to determine you know, what's in the packet. In our case, it was looking at these UDP packets being sent from the mobile app on an Android phone to the drone and trying to decipher them and figure out whether, what does any of this actually mean? Of course, it's a binary format, which means there's no strings that you can find in these packets to tell you what anything means. That's very typical with ground control stations will use binary protocols to communicate with flying objects, simply because you need to reduce the amount of data that's being transmitted or else you're gonna lose control over the drone. So um, it started with a Pythonista whose handle I believe is MicroLinux. He started working on it. Then um, another group of us, basically everybody started digging into a different section of the drone's functionality, started analyzing a different set of packets, trying to decipher them. And um, we all worked together. None of us had ever met each other. We don't even know who any of us are in the real world. Well, well they know who I am, I guess. Too late for that. But uh, so we were generally successful. And last week, we were able to not only... Uh, decipher the flight control protocol so we could send the drone, you know, up, down, left, right, uh, make it do flips. You know, a flip to a drone is like a lens flare to a photographer. It's like, you know, the, the trick that you always do and, you know, the, it's kind of gratuitous, but you do it anyway because it's fun. Any photographers out there? Silence. I tried. Yeah, I tried to learn. <laughs> Apparently, I, I'm not that good at it. <laughs> I'm really good at framing shots, but I can't focus. And it's a real problem. <laughs> anyway, uh, this is why I use uh, computer vision technology. So um, anyway, we were able to decipher the flight control protocol, so we're able to fly the drone around. But then there's this five megapixel streaming video camera. So we dug in further and we were 
able to decipher the streaming video protocol that was coming from the drone. And so last Friday, um, GoBot released a new version 1.10, which included full support for the Tello, including the full flight control protocol and also a couple of demos showing um, streaming video. One of them using uh, M player. M player or media player is a really, really great open source player. Uh, it's uh, one of the smoothest and supports um, the most protocols, I think. So it's, uh, yeah, that's it, the Tello. So the, um, and then of course, had to get the drone working with. Uh, had to have GoBot also working with GoCV. So um, if you, uh, just to give this surprise away, tomorrow at my talk at Gotham Go, I will be showing a DJI Tello being flown around using GoBot and streaming video to GoCV using TensorFlow to do real-time image classification from the drone video. Oh, so wow. That's from a $99 drone. $99 drone and a Linux notebook, yes. That is crazy. I know. The 21st century is definitely here now, my friends. So with uh, not too much effort, he says, having never done it before, uh, it <laughs> seems like if you could do image recognition and, and smart things like that, you might be able to... Um, teach the drone to navigate a, a course if the course had pretty simplistic markings. Like if you put, you know, police tape outside in a course, you should be able to teach the drone how to navigate, stay between the lines. That'd be a fun summer project for the kids. Oh, definitely. Well, everyone's like, oh, $99 drone. I'm going to get one for the kids. Next thing you know, like, mom, dad won't let me have the drone. You That's know, totally just... me. <laughs> Well, then you get one for each kid, and then you get one for yourself in case the other ones break, <clears throat> or whatever excuse you give yourself. I, I have a <laughs> collection of them. If you need them, just let me know. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's that once we have that, so it was really about connecting the drone to GoCV, because that lets us then have access to the entire OpenCV world which includes lots and lots of interesting code for doing autonomous navigation of various sorts of vehicles, flying ones included. And in fact, um, the same chip, the same Intel Movidius chip, well, the same chip architecture, not the exact same chip, but um, the same architecture that is used the Movidius Myriad 2 the DJI Phantom 2 drone uses that same chip for its collision avoidance algorithm. So, you, yes, this is going to happen, and hopefully we'll have it working in time for GopherCon. Wow. You know what would be really cool is to get several of these and uh, develop something to kind of give them, like, emergent behavior, right, where... 
they can fly together and they're adapting to what the one next to it is doing rather than kind of like a central system controlling all of them. I'll give them like flock mentality. Exactly. The starlings. Well, yeah, the, if you've seen, yeah, starlings, exactly. Um, if you've never seen them, starlings are amazing in flight. However, if you've never seen them, there's two other characteristics of starlings that are not typically shown in the cool little discovery channel videos. The first one is, they're incredibly noisy. Like they literally never shut up all night long. And the other is a huge flock of starlings leaves an incredible amount of uh, refuse underneath where they happen to be perched. They're quite a, a uh, it's pretty nasty. That's all I can say. It's a, the sidewalk is completely white. It's kind of mm. gross. And now anyway. is this an analogy to things computer vision lives behind? Yeah. Or just uh, It was more like if too many people have drones, it's kind of like starlings. Like when there's one, they're cute. When there's five, they're neat. But when everyone's got them, you're like, okay, maybe uh, maybe that idea about the drone license isn't a bad idea at all. But uh, but back to the swarm thing. Um, so yeah, the, the DJI Tello is a Wi-Fi controlled drone it has its own built-in access point so if you have the chops and skills you can connect multiple wi-fi adapters or maybe even connect a single wi-fi adapter to multiple access points and then fly them as a swarm um, they have the camera built in so if you have the programming wherewithal you could add some code to do the positioning so that they each, in fact, the teller already does quite a lot of that for you. That way they stay in the position you put them in for the formation. And then, you know, obviously attaching some cool blinky LEDs to them. So that way you can, you know, create something similar to the Olympics drone spectacle that Intel put on. That drone is not commercially available. I don't know if and when it ever will be. I don't even know what I'm talking about because I'm under NDA. But um, you could build something similar to that probably with the Tello for only $99 each drone. Let's just put it that way. No one's listening to this podcast, right? No, nobody listens. Okay, good. So shh, everyone keep it real quiet and be cool. Don't tell anyone. Just go do it. I'm quite interested in the fact that it says it supports VR headsets, but I can't find any specs on that. That would be pretty cool too, having the uh, um, the video while you fly. It would make you feel like you were flying. Yeah, I mean, there have some. Um, you could just actually, if you have an Android phone, you know, they have these inexpensive uh, VR headsets. Mm -hmm. And if you have a budget that's higher than that, you can buy various first-person video, video goggles. That's all they really are talking about is first-person video in the form of something that attaches to your face. Um, mm. Cuts out all the outside light. So you could do that uh, right now. Or even build one um, you know, with an expensive single-board Linux computer um, I was thinking of making one out of a couple of OLED displays and a beagle bone, a, a pocket beagle bone, which is the new little tiny nineteen dollar uh, single board Linux computer from Beagle Bone. Hmm. 
Very cool. The future is here now. We just need to build it, my friends. We do. I would I would spend weeks just doing awesome things with this. It's got all of the the features, the capabilities that you would want. I mean, it's completely controllable. It's got video and you could process. I love the fact that it's you can stream the video back to GoBot because, yeah, once like you said, once you hook up OpenCV, you know, game over. There's all kinds of awesome stuff you can do. I prefer to think game on as opposed game to game on. over. Game there over is like the drones are coming for us. You know, they're saying, mom, dad, you know, could you please give me a fresh battery? You're like, ah, these drones are just like humans. <laughs> wow, this looks amazing. But yeah, it's and the cool thing is, so the same interface that's used by GoBot for controlling drones from Parrot or um, a couple of other companies that are supported. So it's the same interface that you use with the DJI Tello uh, driver support in GoBot. So you know, you basically just change two lines of code and the code that you were flying around your, you know, I was flying my Parrot Mini drone. So if you saw my earlier talks on uh, computer vision earlier, as in earlier this year. Um, so I, this year has been a really great year for, I guess, my um, personal brand or whatever. I don't know. It's kind of corny. People's awareness of the cool stuff that's out there that I also am aware of, I think is more realistic. You know, I'm just a messenger. I mean, I write code and I do things, but I always look at it like I'm taking some cool stuff that someone else did and then you know, putting my stuff onto it and then giving it to someone else who's going to do some cool stuff with it of their own. You know, it's just, it's the circle of code. So, um, but I was really lucky this year to speak at both FOSDEM, which is the free and open source Linux conference that takes place in uh, Brussels. Really amazing uh, conference, open source conference. And then just a couple weeks later, also speak at Scale. Scale is the Southern California Linux Expo, and it's, um, I think it's the largest independent Linux Expo in North America. So I'm truly grateful that, um, and also really happy that so many people are so interested in computer vision and drones. Anyway, the point was that I was, if you saw those talks, then you saw the last appearances that will be made probably of the Parrot Mini Drone. Um, I took a Parrot Mambo mini drone and I attached using a 3D printed uh, homebrew uh, a first person video camera, the same as are used for FPV drone racers. I, maybe I won't retire that one yet. That one's actually pretty cool. Anyway, uh, that I, I have glasses. I can fly with the glasses. and That one's controlled by Bluetooth. It doesn't have as long of a battery life and it doesn't have a built-in camera. Um, well, actually, I think the newer version that they came out with has a camera, but I don't have one yet. Anyway, you know, that's a lot of moving parts or additional parts, I should say. You have to 3D print an assembly. You have to do a little tiny custom wiring harness. You have to have a video adapter for your notebook computer that lets you receive the analog video signals from the first-person video transmitter. You know, that, that, that's a lot of things to go wrong and a lot of extra cables. Now I just do have it all through the Tello. So, uh, 
the evolution of drones, who knows what I'll be flying by the end of the year at this rate. That is crazy cool. I, you're not even going to be flying it. You're just going to you know, tell it where to go. That's what it's missing is a GPS. Well, the, the more higher-end drones um, have GPSs built in. The Parrot Bebop has a GPS. The, um, me, most of the DJI drones have GPS. I mean, the D GPS chipset's very inexpensive these days, and it's easier just to put it in than not. But one thing that you do have to realize is GPS does not work well indoors, especially when there's a lot of interference, like you're on a drone with motors that are spinning and creating electromagnetic interference. So generally speaking, GPS is only used for uh, navigation outside, not really inside. Uh, for inside navigation, you need to have some other type of data, visual data, for example, to figure out where you are. Right. But yeah, it's a very exciting year, um, you know, for everybody who's involved in the programmable drone world and, and for me personally, just for getting a chance to share some of the stuff that I've been able to do with, with all these different pieces of technology. This episode of GoTime is brought to you by Active State. Active State gives you a faster way to build and secure open source runtimes from your first line of code on through to production. Every second you spend building your Go distro or open source language distro is less time spent on doing the work you love. You got better things to do. You know it. I know it. And with Active State, you can focus on your code and leave the open source to them. Your teams can standardize with Go builds from Active State for your specific use. You'll have less friction in the development cycle, and that means you can deliver apps faster. Try Active State and see why it was chosen by IBM, Microsoft, NASA, Siemens, PepsiCo, and more. Discover for yourself why millions of developers trust Active State to build their open source language distros. Check them out at activestate.com slash go time. Once again, activestate.com slash go time. All right, I have a, a put you on the spot question, Ron. You're going to enjoy this one. You go to dozens of conferences every year and you, you show off all this killer technology. Uh, what is the biggest crazy circumstance that happened during a conference that was not planned? Which, which drone crashed into the conference organizer? Which uh, sprinkler system got turned on? What's the best conference demo failure story you have for us? Oh, wow. There's so many when you're flying things around. So many things that could go wrong. Um, well, let's see. My personal favorite was uh, when uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I was doing a lot of work with my brother, Damon, Damon Evans. He's a project manager. Uh, he works uh, at Expedia. He's a hardware hacker as well. Brilliant guy. So we were doing a lot of collaborations and I was back in those days, my robot ops were not as sophisticated as they are now. So robot ops is DevOps for robots. 
And uh, mm. I used to need to have at least two or three assistants with me in order to work all the equipment. Now I can do it all myself and make up bad jokes at the same time. So I guess that's an improvement. It's, it is for me personally. But uh, so we were at the Golden Gate Ruby conference showing um, R2, which is uh, the Ruby version of this same framework that we were working on for a couple of years. And uh, the grand finale, he ended up, uh, we had a Wi-Fi problem and he lost control of the drone. So it was flying directly towards the big projection screen. And it was literally right at the end of the talk. And it just slams right into the screen. Luckily, it hits it on the little foam rubber uh, protectors. So instead of the props slicing right through the screen, it just bounces off. The emergency protect, there's an emergency circuit built into most drones. And if the angle of the drone is not, you know, is dangerous, if it's not, if it's going to crash, the turns off all the motors just so that way it falls to the ground. You know, the drone is usually destroyed, but it doesn't chop up anybody on its way down. Um, so the emergency protection circuit kicks in, the drone drops like a stone onto the stage, and everyone just erupts in applause because it was just like, <laughs> it was the ultimate mic drop. <laughs> That's awesome. If we could only do that on command, that would be amazing. But yeah, that was that was a pretty good one. So I've got a question. The the Tello has the the Movius VPU in it. Are there boards that you can buy for that? Say you wanted to do your you were working on your own quadcopter or something, because there's a lot of open source flight controllers. It'd be interesting to um, augment one, you know, and leverage that VPU. Sure. So um, Movidius sells a developer kit with the Myriad 2 in the form of USB stick. So if you have a USB port, uh, full size, um, you could just plug it in. Uh, there's Linux code. We, we have a project called GoNCS. NCS stands for Neural Compute Stick. That's the real name of this thing, I guess. Um, anyway, GoNCS lets you uh, use the um, Myriad from Go. And of course, there's a demo on that website for OCV as well that lets you use GoNCS from GoCV. Go so utilizing the hardware acceleration built into the Movidius uh, VPU. So that's one way to do it. Um, there are others. I mean, basically, the war is on. The war of the VPUs. I know many people are like, VPU? I haven't even heard of VPU. And there's already a war on? Man, wow, that was quick. So yeah, Intel's uh, bought Movidius, uh, I think, two years ago. Uh, they saw they needed some powerful armaments in this new competitive space. Uh, NVIDIA, obviously, is a big leader in this space. Uh, lots of interesting stuff coming from them. Uh, ARM, obviously big important player in the embedded space and they uh, have made several announcements recently. So, I mean, it is game on as far as this using deep neural network technology for processing computer vision information. Now there are other applications for this stuff. Um, I know uh, several people who are using neural network technologies for other applications having nothing to do with computer vision, but you know, that's my own particular line of research and uh and there's been a lot of exciting developments in that space 
And that actually answers my question even better because, I mean, that means you kind of open up playing with uh, Go and that VPU just on your regular laptop. You don't necessarily even need a drone for that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, that That's absolutely the case. And um, it works quite well. You can also use multiple VPUs in a single application. See if you can. The Go programmers already know where I'm going with this. You know, Python programmers are like going, well, what would you need that for? You know, <laughs> sorry about that. But it is a problem, you know, that, you know, Python is a great language. And if you want to do computer vision programming in Python, you cannot go wrong because you will find lots and lots of information out there. But you will hit a point where the performance is just not going to cut it. You know, that's not Python's strength. It's its weakness. Its strength is its ubiquity and, and that there's lots of cool libraries and tools already out there. You know, Go has been playing catch up compared to other technologies, perhaps, in some of these areas. Um, embedded, you know, um, I know we've talked about this before. So at the first GopherCon, you know, I was fortunate to have uh, my talk accepted. And uh, so I, I was not able to make it to the first day of the conference. Unfortunately, the first GopherCon, which I really wanted to go there. But my excuse was uh, the same as Katrina Owen's excuse, which was both of us were the recipients of a Ruby Hero Award the day of the first day of the conference. And so I, I saw Katrina on stage and like I'm like, oh, I know why you're getting this award, but I don't know, I'm not really sure why I'm here. But I had to show up because I still love Ruby and I want to say – you know, I don't want to send a message to the Ruby world like, sorry, I moved on the go. Peace out. You know, like that's not that that's not a uh, that's not who I am. And that's not the message I want to say. And that's also not how I feel. So it's like, oh, I got to miss the first day of the first gopher con. So I missed Rob Pike's talk keynote where he said, you know, go is not really for embedded systems. And. I, I'm sorry, I, I didn't know that, Mr. Pike. I, I use it for embedded systems. Now, I wasn't the only one. Turns out there, were, there are other people who have been trying to do things with Go and embedded systems for a while. You know, obviously, there's, you know, the portability is a big deal. Um, the, you know, performance is a big deal, but not quite as much when you're working on small, low-powered hardware. It's more about just you know, eking out as much performance as you can get. But the fact that we don't have a official, you know, the community around embedded systems in Go is an informal community. It's one that's sort of self-organized. And there are other communities, for example, the Rust community. There's a lot of cool stuff coming from Rust. Um, a lot of smart people working in Rust. Also, one of the key takeaways from FOSDAM, the uh, Belgian conference, was there is no Go versus Rust. That is made up by the technology. The technology media wants to make it language A versus language B. It's not true. In fact, there are quite a few projects that are using both Go and Rust quite quite well together because they sort of solve different problems in a different way and. So um, that sort of brings us to 
some of the cool stuff that's going on that I'm not directly involved with. Um, so there's a really interesting project that has, you know, the last couple of weeks have been a tremendous we uh, series of weeks for hardware-oriented development in the Go programming world. Okay, it's been an amazing couple of weeks. Uh, obviously, you know, flying drones with Go is really cool. You know, you're welcome. No. <laughs> 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 but but that is so just one piece of the coolness that's going on out in the world of go and embedded systems this would be a great chance to give a shout out to mgo emgo mgo so mgo is um a project which is designed so how would i describe mgo so mgo is sort of like an attempt to use a Go-like syntax to try to use a, a version of Go that's able to run on very small, low-powered, uh, single-board, system-on-chip type devices like the STM32 microcontroller. So, wait, you're running Go on microcontrollers? How is that possible? Well, it's not possible, okay? Unless, unless you do a few tricks, which is, Many people who program Arduinos think they're using C++ to program Arduinos, but you're not. You're using a C++-like syntax, and you're using a bunch of the C++ tooling, but it's not actually a full C++, as Arduino microcontroller programmers find out relatively quickly. You can't do all the same things in Arduino C or C++, Arduino, it's just like the language is called Arduino for lack of a better descriptor. So I view MGO, so MGO is like that. It's a stripped down version of a lot of Go functionality. It's not the full version of Go. If you think you're going to run all the same Go stuff on a microcontroller, you know, you're dreaming. But who said you needed to do that to be doing something amazing and useful? I mean, that's a false dichotomy. So this project, MGO, it takes the, um, it takes the GCC compilers and Go, does some cool hacks to create a bit of a tool chain, and he's had a couple of blog posts that were featured on um, Golang Weekly. Uh, and it's really, really cool, the stuff he's doing. Now, it's... It's way more complicated than most people can really understand right now, just because it's so new. But I find it very, very exciting, and I think it's going to be a tremendous, you know, addition to the Go hardware-oriented development community. So definitely go check out uh, MGo. Yeah, we've actually talked about it. Uh, what, I think the last two weeks, as the posts came out, uh, I still have yet to get to play with it, but. Like, I'm really excited by it because, you know, Brian and I tinker a little bit in our spare time on, on hardware. And the idea that I can use even something Go-like instead of C is super appealing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there, there's been a few attempts to do this. You know, it's a hard problem. I mean, it's similar to the computer vision problem. Like, I think I know how to solve it. But, you know, think, you know at least in this case, thank God someone else did. Someone else flinched first. And boy, am I happy! Thanks, man. 
because I, I really want to use this. And also I want to evaluate what abilities there are for combining the powers of Gobot along with MGo. Because, you know, Gobot is like, you know, Ruby on Rails and MGo is maybe like, you know, the, you know, Postgres SQL driver for Ruby. You know, it's a more, that's a bad metaphor, but what the, the idea being that you're going to need both of these things and a bunch more tools as well to actually create any serious production quality, you know, hardware oriented application. So is there somebody like, should people reach out to you for the working group side of things? Cause it, I mean, it sounds like that's something, a call to action you're looking for is to kind of assemble people who are interested in doing go or go like things on embedded devices. So, um, so yeah, there is, there's definitely a need for a go embedded working group. Um, several, the rust, uh, has an embedded working group that I believe was formed at the end of last year. Um, I'm not sure about the timing. Uh, several of them are rust core team members. Um, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely willing to help with this, but so, but I, the big difference between what we're doing and what they're doing is this is an, what the Rust embedded working group is an actual official part of the Rust team. The stuff that we're all doing is we're just off all, all off on our own doing our own things. You know, the best thing would be if like, you know, Google decides to sponsor this or something. I'm just picking Google because, you know, go. But maybe it's another big company. Maybe it's Microsoft. Maybe it's Amazon. You know, to say, wow, we really need this. And to make this happen, someone's got to make it their full-time first-class activity because otherwise, you know, it just doesn't go very far very fast. You know, when, when anyone has time, they row the boat a little bit, but it doesn't really move anywhere. So, so one thing I think which would be really great for the community is, you know, to lock down some real corporate level sponsorship of these activities, you know, obviously GoBot is out there first. It's the most popular. It's got the most users, you know, so that's the first place to start. But more importantly, GoBot is the, is the flag to rally around to say, MGo, go do your cool stuff and we'll figure out if it, maybe it's incorporated into GoBot, maybe it's not. That doesn't matter. The point is, this is important work that needs to be done. So let's, and we need to get more people to know about it. You know, a good example of this kind of collaboration is, um, so recently we added part of, let me, let me, how do I say this? So recently we, uh, we've been working, let me just, I'll start over. So there's a really cool project called perif.io from uh, Marc-Antoine Ruel of Google. It's a very cool hardware-oriented project, which is designed to be a lower-level set of capabilities than what GoBot provides. And so the other important part of the most recent GoBot release that was sort of overshadowed by all the drones flying around, you know, <laughs> um, is that we are now using Perif.io's SPI, or SPI, 
uh, low level functionalities as part of GoBot in order to control spy hardware devices such as analog to digital controllers or OLED displays. So we've been working on figuring out how to combine forces, you know, Voltron these projects for a while. And um, so we finally got the work done. In fact, uh, Mark Antoine has also been super, super helpful uh, with some other computer visual work. He's a great guy and a tremendous contributor to the community overall. So, you know, these are the sort of things that if, if we can find some way to make it formal, make it real, put a ring on it, if you will, you know, I'm willing. So here's my call to action. Big co's in the world, or even small co's, if you think this is important, and if you care about this, get in touch and write a check. You know, or, or hell, hire me. I'll run it from your company to, um, to make this happen. Because that's, what, that's why Russ Embedded Working Group is getting a lot of momentum and is ultimately going to be successful because it's real. It's not just a side project or, I mean, this is not a side project for me, but you, know, you can only do so much as a small consultancy and so I think it's important that we as a community rally around the sorts of projects that we think are important and we, you know, put some funding behind them so that we can find out where they go. Exactly. And the important projects are the ones that can make my barbecue work. Exactly. Food is critical to life. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly it. I think that, um, we are getting close to our uh, time limit, and we should probably move on to uh, news and, and interesting projects. Does anybody have anything they want to hit with Ron before we do that? No, I think we're we're ready. Yeah. All right, I'll I'll kick off the news. It, Carlicia is the one who actually dropped this in our Slack channel just a second ago. This is gigantic, momentous, huge news. The Go blog, blog.golang.org has a new blog post out today written by Steve Francia on Go's new brand. We've got a new Go logo, a new typeface, new colors, new brand guide. I mean, we're talking like a printed brand guide booklet here. Go is looking serious, very, very serious. I think and at it, this point, it's corporate ready. It looks really, really nice. Really well put together, clean, good looking. I love it. Yeah. Now the question is, you know, is this how they're using it, or you know, they they plan on everybody else using it? What like what happens if uh, you you use it inappropriately? Things like that. Well, I think you would get a call from the brand police because it, if you if they go to the trouble of publishing brand guidelines for a brand and a trademark that they own then they're probably going to call you and say, you're using our brand inappropriately. Please change that. I, that's I what I would assume. Why, why would you go through the trouble of publishing this? I would agree that the, I would agree with Brian from what I read. I mean, I read the whole thing. They are acting like a corporation and they give in, give you the guidelines for the, for the, for usage of the logo and fonts. And they even give, even giving you pre-made master slides 
And I don't think they would do anything. I don't know, right? It's a good question. But I, I think they can at least ask you to use the proper branding. Yeah, let's look at an example, right? So like um, the gopher page, you know, it says like the gopher is not a logo. You know, it can be used on communications, but it shouldn't be used as a logo. So what does that mean for like all the meetups and conferences that are like using gophers? <laughs> well, then the question for me would be, is that logo representing your meetup or is the logo representing Go? Because if you are representing Go, then you know what I mean? You can use yeah. a gopher for your meetup. But well, if you... I don't, I'm not an attorney. I don't <laughs> play one on the internet. But I'll weigh in since this is a podcast and we're expressing opinions. It's a cool-looking logo. Totally cool. I'll use it. But there's no requirement for me to use it. I don't have to use anything as visually from Go. I can even call it something else because it's open source. So I could say it's Google Go, right? And the, yeah. they can't stop you from doing that. There is no basis for doing that. I don't think that's the basis for this. I think it's more, hey, everybody, we would like to make your lives easier by giving you some cool-looking visual stuff that you could show to your boss's boss's boss and that person doesn't start laughing at you because the logo's got, you know, the fonts that it, that person doesn't like. You know, I don't, I don't think this is an edict to say, you must now use this. I don't think there's, they have no way to enforce that quite, quite. And also Go, are you talking about Amazon Go? Are talking about <laughs> Intel Go? Are we talking about the Go, the game? No, this is, this is not that. And it even says at the bottom of this, which I just read real fast while we were on this post, because I hadn't seen this, that it does not mean, wait, I scrolled past it. I was too fast. Ah, Coordinated with and built upon the great foundation that Rene French established. Rest easy, our beloved gopher mascot remains at the center of our brand. So this is not about killing gophers, thank God. You know, <laughs> this, I think this is, you know, for consistency, it's to create an identity that we can, again, it's a flag for us to put up, not one that we are going to have stamped on our foreheads. At least that's my interpretation. But uh Remember, I did say I don't even play an attorney on the internet, so. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so what else do we have? I dropped a bunch of things in our list this week. One of the most interesting ones was a uh, repository called Anko, A-N-K-O, from uh, Yasuhiro Masumoto, which is uh, Matt N, M-A-T-T-N on GitHub, so github.com slash Matt N slash Anko. It's a scriptable interpreter that you can embed in your app, which means that uh, you can run uh, it basically like embedding Lua in your Go app or something else. Uh, it's really impressive uh, how complete it is and, and how easy it is to embed that interpreter. And you can do all kinds of crazy stuff with it. So uh, I was thinking that maybe I should take a week or two off and just go play with all the cool things that I can script but then I thought better of it. Uh, so I've been at um, GoTo this week, and I actually just earlier today watched Frances do a talk about the uh, robustness of Go and kind of um, comparing that to Erlang and Beam and stuff. I, I won't give away too much, but the slides are online now, and I would imagine within the next couple of days, the talk itself should be published in video form. I can't wait to see that talk. 
Yeah, that's going to be a good one. That bullet point about Erlang is the one that literally brought, like, I got to see this talk. <laughs> I saw a, a picture on Twitter that someone had published. I think it was Bridget Cromhow had published the picture. Um, and it showed how using Erlang with the Beam VM and using Go with Kubernetes was generally analogous. So if you want to have high resiliency Go apps, just pair it with Kubernetes and you've got all of the features that Erlang has for network resiliency. And I thought that was an interesting um, analogy. Yeah, and that was essentially the takeaway for it. But yeah, I, I, I won't give away too much detail, but it's actually really good. And he walks through some of the language features and things like that too um, for things that are just robust by themselves with inside Go. That's cool. It's going to be a good talk. And speaking of good talks, uh, Brian, what have you and I been working on this week? Good talks? <laughs> yeah. I, so, I don't know. What have we been working on this week? It's been a rough week for me. Yeah, so we um, have started our speaker selection for GopherCon. So, oh, yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So I, I imagine that uh, we will make an announcement at least of uh, some of the speakers here soon. Um, but yeah, all of the acceptance and rejection emails will be going out uh, pretty quickly over this week and maybe early next week, depending on how fast we get through this stuff. But so you can look forward to speaker announcements soon. I totally forgot that I did that, too. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's been that week. And there is the Brazil GopherCon that opened their CFP this week. Very nice. Yeah. I'm hoping to uh, come up with something to submit for that. Okay, so uh, I think we're about out of time. Do we want to run through Free Software Friday? We can skip it if we're out of time. Doesn't hurt my feelings. I think we got a couple minutes. It shouldn't take long. All right, mine's easy since I already mentioned uh, Matt N. Yasuhiro Matsumoto. Uh, I was I was trolling through his GitHub repositories and he's only got 1,300 of them. And I realized how many of those are embedded in the other open source projects that I use. I was shocked. So uh, shout out to Yasuhiro Matsumoto for building so many killer projects that are the foundation of all of the rest of the killer projects that I love. Uh, that's really awesome. Wow, and really quietly, too. Yeah. Well, my shout-out this week is to uh, somewhat better known in the community, but but no less ubiquitous, uh, Steve Francia. Uh, so earlier this week, I was using Hugo for one thing and then Cobra for another thing, and I just thought, wow, w without Steve's work, and, and really the amazing part is not just how cool those projects are, but... The fact that other people now are primarily responsible for maintaining them. In other words, they're really well done work that is both useful to the community and able to be maintained by the community itself. That's a tremendous achievement. Yeah. And two really fantastic libraries, too. So mine for this week, because uh, we're, we're talking go-to themed, because that's where I'm at this week. Um, I just want to give a shout out to Jeff Hodges. Um, he did a great talk um, yesterday on uh, like productionalizing distributed systems, which is based off of uh, 
blog post he wrote a few years ago, which is still super, super relevant, called uh, uh, Notes on Distributed Systems for Young Bloods. But huge shout out to him for sharing a lot of uh, his distributed systems knowledge and the challenges there and how to build production, uh, productionalized distributed systems. I'll link to the, um, the old post in the show notes, but in theory, by the time this uh, recording goes out, the video from GoTo should be available too. And then Carlisa, did you have anything this week? I did not. All right. So I think we might actually be like perfectly on time. This will be interesting. <laughs> um, thanks so much for coming on again, Ron. And I think, uh, DJI probably owes you uh, some commission because <laughs> I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of purchases. <laughs> I, I'm pretty proud of the fact that I only bought one during the show. That's good. <laughs> there's always time for more. You're going to go back and listen to the episode and you're going to hear us start talking about flocking behavior and you're going to like, I'm going to need more than That's one right. for that. I already <laughs> have a couple. couple of these. I already have a couple. <laughs> oh, we're in trouble. Yeah, I already have a couple. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> uh, it's it's always a great time getting you on the show, Ron. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thanks, you guys, for having me. I, I love the show, and then I love to participate and keep up the great work. Thank you. All right, that's it for this week's episode of Go Time. I hope you enjoyed it. Do us a favor, go on Overcast, go on Apple Podcasts, go on wherever you're listening to this podcast. Favorite it, share it, like it, tweet it, whatever you got to do. Help us promote this show to your friends and fellow gophers. Bandwidth for Go Time and Changelog is provided by Fastly. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast here at Changelog and fix things because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelog.com or an Apple Podcast or an Overcast or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next week. <laughs>